Beloved congregation, all of mankind and even the Lord's people are we're so in love with ourselves that we are very prone to justifying ourselves, of excusing our sin. Uh, that is why it's good for us to read uh, chapters like Romans 1, 2, and 3 to remind ourselves of, of uh, not only what we were before we were saved, but uh, what we continue to wrestle with. We are not completely made perfect when we're saved. And we struggle with sin. And that struggle with sin may frustrate you and annoy you. It does, doesn't it, for every Christian? But that very existence of that struggle is a good indication that you're saved. That you don't excuse the sin, but that you know that that is a very cause for us to come to a gracious, loving, holy God through the redemption that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But sin is very, very subtle. Satan is uh, very devious in his ways, and uh, we, are, uh, we are no match for him. He is far wiser than we are, but he is not wiser than or mightier than our Savior. So we are thankful for the, the guiding, protecting hand of Christ upon his church. We look in this chapter of Isaiah, we see first of all in the first verse that salvation is in the character of God. There's salvation in the character of God. God is the one who says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. And we can sometimes act that way, as if God is a God afar off, that he is sovereign in some abstract way that does not really relate to our own lives. But he is a God, uh, Isaiah says, his arm is not shortened. He can do whatsoever he, he wills, and when he does not do something, it is because he has willed to not do it. There are times when God's judgment is upon a nation and upon even his people. Beloved, do you doubt that salvation is of the Lord? And it's a very dangerous thing to be in that place where, you're th where you think that your sin is so great that the Lord won't hear your confession or that his arm is shortened that it cannot save, that he's reaching out and reaching out, but he, those sins are too great for me to forgive. Words that God would never, ever say. Um, God's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. He's powerful and mighty to save his people. And God hears. Never believe, uh, beloved, that God is too busy or uh, too concerned with other things to be uninterested in your prayers. The Lord hears the prayers of the humble, the contrite heart. It's a great encouragement to the Lord's people. God does not change. He was like this in the days of Isaiah. He's like this in the 21st century. God is not at fault. 
The problem is not that salvation is in the character of God. The problem is that sinfulness is in the character of man. And so he goes on to explain this in verses 2 through 8. And notice he changes uh, the way that he addresses himself in this passage. He speaks here in the third person, beginning in verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. If, there, if God seems distant and far away, it is because we have moved, not because he has moved. And it is our sin that has separated us from God. The Lord sometimes visits his people with spiritual dearth so that they, they don't have the inclination. They don't have the desire sometimes even to fall on their knees and seek his face. But there is, there's an innate desire that we know should be there. And so we do pursue it. And the best thing, of course, is to pray for it. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He goes on to say, verily, he hath heard me. But it's a caution there, isn't it? If I regard iniquity in my heart, if I think that if I can somehow embrace sin and then somehow still uh, expect the will of God or expect uh, the mercy of God to fall upon me, no, the cleansing for sin is, is thorough. It's searching by the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 28, verse 9, he that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. When we come to the place where we'd rather not hear the hard things about uh, your own heart, uh, that is the very place that you need to be and, and confess and admit how foolish we are to think that, that God doesn't see our sin or that he doesn't think it important or significant. We act that way too often, don't we? Does God really know? Does he really see? Does he really care? Is it insignificant? What, what harm can be done by this little, little lie? What harm can be done in this small transgression? And we fail to remember that every sin, the smallest sin, nailed the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. So our whole body, Isaiah says, is engaged in this rebellion. Verse 3, for, for your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. And then he talks about the sins of the society as a whole in verse 4. And what a picture this is of our own nation. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. These passages are quoted in Romans 3 that we read earlier. Uh, and Paul draws from these words of Isaiah to remind us that there's none righteous. No, not one. Everyone needs to be saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is interested in justice or 
truth. He says in verse 5, they nurture their, their sin the way someone would nurture an egg. And then they nurture that egg and keep it all warm. And what comes forth? A snake, an asp, a, 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 a cockatrice. And a wickedness comes forth from their, their nurturing of this sin. They clothe themselves with vanity. Like garments made of a spider's web. They think it looks great and there's nothing there. Their ways are crooked. Verse 7, their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not. And there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. And we live in a time when those words are just seem to be springing from people's lips. Peace and love and acceptance. These are all words that are used so prevalently in our age. And people don't think what they really mean. A lot of people assume they know what they mean, but they've not looked to the Lord for the definition of those words. Peace, peace, Isaiah says elsewhere. They speak peace, peace, but there is no peace. They use the words, but they have no knowledge of what that peace actually entails. We have problems with, uh, with racism. I've heard a prominent uh, black man use, asked what, what is the problem? Why do I have such a problem? with How do we solve the problem of racism? He said, we've got to stop talking about it. Isn't that a simple solution? <laughs> as soon as you talk about it, you're kind of exercising it. Once you acknowledge that there's these differences that we think should divide us, and, and we talk about it more and more, has it made the problem Better has it solved the problem? It has not solved the problem because we're talking about uh, what it is in a way that we, we actually become racist. The world's wisdom is so foolish. And if we just loved everybody, they say they want to love everybody, but they don't know how to do that without being prejudiced against others. Uh, that's, that's the world's problem. They don't know what love is. And they talk about love, but it's all very superficial. And there's no depth of the sacrificial love that we see, for instance, on the cross of Calvary. So the sins of our society are, are pervasive. Uh, we talk about truth, but we don't know what it is. So thirdly, we come in verses 9 to 15 to submission in the confession of Christians. Here we begin a section in Isaiah that uh, speaks in the first person. Therefore is judgment far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. So these are sins even of which we 
have to confess that we are guilty. We need the light of the gospel daily. We need the light of the, the world, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge that there is a, a present struggle with sin that we need to continually be engaged in. And if we're not, we are, we are backsliding. We're going, if we're not killing sin, we're being killed by sin. And uh, that is a very important Christian principle that we have to maintain. Remember the, perhaps the uh, early uh, minister, American minister, John Bradford, as he saw a man being taken away on uh, a horse to his hanging. I'm not sure of the crime that was, had been committed, but he was going to be hanged. And John Bradford said there, but for the grace of God go I. Those sins are all resident in my heart. But the Lord has suppressed them. He's forgiven the ones that he's made me aware of, that I have confessed to him. That could easily be me. But by the grace of God, it's not me. He didn't say that in a pharisaical way. I thank thee that I'm not as other men. It's very, very opposite. It's more like the public and prayer, right? That could be me, but it's not by the grace of God. Not by my works, but by God's grace and mercy. So there's only one thing, beloved, that keeps you from openly defying and rebelling against a holy God, isn't there? That's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that keeps you. It's the grace of God that has separated you and made you a holy people. It's the grace of God that keeps you in his love. So then the Lord's people come around to confession in these verses. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. Verse 11, we look for judgment, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and as for our iniquities, we know them. We own our, our own sins and the depravity of our hearts. I think often in these days of the prayers of Daniel and Ezra, Daniel chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, and to some degree Nehemiah chapter 9, just remember the number 9, and Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But here's Daniel. Uh, one of the men in the scriptures that's in many places celebrated for his holiness, for his exemplary testimony of God's saving grace. The man who defied Nebuchadnezzar and prayed when it was illegal to pray, prayed openly as his custom was, and was willing to defy the king of the nation, but not defy the God who saved him. A holy man a godly man, an exemplary man. When he comes to Daniel chapter 9, he counts out the years, he's reading Jeremiah, and he says, Jeremiah said that our captivity was going to last 70 years. And he gets out his calendar and he checks it out, he says, this is 70 years. And we should be going free, but we're still in Babylon. 
He didn't say, what's the matter with God? Did, doesn't God keep his promises? He said, no. If God has delayed our liberty, if God has delayed our freedom from bondage, it's our fault. And so in Daniel chapter 9, the most humble of all prayers, Daniel says, we have done wickedly. We have rebelled against your law. He identifies with the, the rebellion of the nation. We could easily say, Daniel could say, your people, I'm, at least I'm standing, but your people are all rebellious. But he includes himself in the number. Ezra includes himself in that number. We have done wickedly. We are responsible. If there's anything wrong here, it's not what God has done or not done. It's that we have not done our part. And God is just to do whatever he wants. If we think he's delaying his timetable, it's not his problem. It's our problem. So what great humility there was. And here Isaiah is is expressing that great, that same humility. There is problem in all of us. In some sense, we also should confess the sins of our nation as our own. We think about how maybe in my lifetime, 50, 60 years ago, this church should maybe have been more bold, more aggressive, more openly defiant of the humanism that so gradually and slowly overtook uh, the morals of our nation. And the people of, of our own nation just succumbing to the ease of falling into sinful ways rather than fighting against, uh, against sin. Whatever the case is, we can go back and we can analyze this uh, for years and decades. The fact is that we find ourselves in the position that we are in now. And we can say, maybe we should have done more. Whatever is happening here, the church may have failed our own nation. But the right thing is to plead to the Lord and plead with the Lord. We know that there is no judgment outside of the church. Our, our nation knows nothing about judgment. Again, they use the word a lot. They use the word justice a great deal, but they have no idea what justice is. They have their, their own definitions. And you know that their, just, their definition of justice includes the fact that Christians are always unjust. Uh, they're set against the Lord's people. And there's a great perversion. We read about that in verse 14. In, trans, in transgressing and lying, this is still about our sins, in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And here are the sins of the nation. And judgment is turned away backward. And justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Modern-day justice is, uh, is perverse. It's completely perverted. It's really a, a 
form of Marxism, and Marx said that what we need to do is view people and view our problems in, in terms of who is oppressed. If somebody's oppressed, then uh, you should take their side. Not, don't ask, well, why they're oppressed, just the fact that they're oppressed. Uh, so the whole idea turns everything on its head. And if you tell people, if I tell you, oh, aren't you oppressed? Aren't you oppressed by your neighbor? Aren't you oppressed by your husband, by your wife? And uh, all these people, your, your employer, you're being oppressed. And uh, it's very easy in the flesh to say, you know something, you're right. I am oppressed. And uh, they come in, they want to feel sorry for you. And there's no sense of justice because there's no standard. There's no standard at all. So we are to protect the oppressed. Um, that idea of protecting the oppressed is found over a hundred times in the Bible. But those who are truly oppressed, those who are oppressed by Satan, those who are oppressed by sin, their own flesh, those who are oppressed and in departing from God, uh, we offer the gospel, the free uh, the free offer of the gospel is, is beautiful to think that as we read in, in Romans that we're saved apart from the law, outside of the law. We're saved by faith, not by the works that we do. And it's a, a, salvation is such a, a glorious, wonderful gift. We need to return to a biblical understanding. Notice in verse 15, he says, Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that seem backwards to you? He that departs from evil, he says, I'm, I'm, this is not right. I'm going to stop living this way. And then he starts living the right way, and he becomes the prey. He becomes the one that everybody attacks. Oh, we were so good. Peter talks about those who find it strange that they are not involved in all of their, that you're not involved in all of their iniquity. They, they deem it strange that you're not partaker of their, uh, of their evil deeds. Uh, why aren't you partying? We're having a great time. And you don't seem to be interested in this. This is very strange. But they become a prey. It's like they become, that the world oppresses righteousness, oppresses the truth as well. Charles Simeon, British pastor, said, Shall I lament for you? No, indeed, but rather congratulate you on the honor conferred upon you. How remarkable is that declaration of the apostle to the Philippian church. To you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Here he represents your sufferings as a gift from God, a gift of a most valuable kind bestowed upon you purely for Christ's sake, a gift greater far than faith itself. For if by faith you are saved, by sufferings you have your, eternal, your weight of glory augmented to an indefinite extent. One of the truths of the Christian life and one that we still can frustrate us is that our growth comes through affliction. Um, it's the Psalm 119 says that's why we love God's I was afflicted 
Therefore, I love thy law. Uh, it, it brings us closer to the Lord. And the Lord is gracious and merciful. So we should count it all joy, beloved, when we fall into diverse temptations. So we become a prey for departing from evil. And this marvelous, uh, amazing idea, truth has fallen in the street and fails. So truth is another word that's entirely subjective in our society. And Christians are marginalized and even attacked for suggesting that there's an objective truth. But we're obsessed with hate crimes uh, very often. And it's so if you have no standard, everything becomes a hate crime. Everything you do against me is going to be a, deemed a hate crime because I'm offended, because I don't like it, because it makes me sad, because it makes me cry. And now I'm going to say that you hate me and now I have recourse. Uh, th these things are foolishness. Um, hate is not a bad thing, beloved. God hates. And God doesn't just hate sin. He hates the workers of iniquity, Psalm 5. He does hate sin. It's not wrong to say he hates sin and loves the sinner. There's a, there's a sense in which that can be true. But he hates the workers of iniquity. Otherwise, why would he cast them into hell? He's a just God. So God hates, and you hate, beloved. If you're in Christ, there, what you love defines what you hate. What you hate defines what you love. And that's true of the world. The world hates Christ and loves sin. If they love sin, they're going to hate Christ. They're going to be openly defiant against him, against his kingship, against his rule, against his sovereignty, against his salvation by free grace. Beloved, you've embraced Christ, have you? Have you embraced Christ and love him? And, and what do you love about your salvation? If you're walking with the Lord, you love that that salvation is free. That despite the fact that you're a sinner, you read in the Bible or somebody told you that when you said, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, and I'm, I'm separated from God, and I have no right to access to God, and then you hear the good news that Jesus receives who? He receives sinners. What good news that is. Jesus receiveth sinners. And the Pharisees and the world hated him for that. Do you know who Jesus hangs out with? He hangs out with people like me. He visits people like us with salvation. The offscouring of the world, they despise us. But really they despise our Savior. And so truth has fallen in the streets. We're here even so many people talk about her truth or his truth or my truth as if it's different from your truth. And that's where we are. Truth is very subjective. Um, the way to heaven is very subjective. Well, you have your religion. You have your beliefs. We ought to respect each other's uh, religions and in many ways we do but we have to boldly say there's only one way to heaven Jesus Christ said I am the way the truth and the life and then he defined that and explained it by saying no man cometh unto the father but by me it's very very clear that Jesus is the only way of salvation
And people despise uh, a, a very definite truth. So it can't be subjective. By very definition, truth cannot be subjective. It cannot change uh, from one person to the next. We have to look outside of ourselves for the truth. It's found in God's law. But beloved, we must be very, very careful that these things do not creep into Christ's church. As we see wickedness rising and the church becoming smaller and smaller, not less glorious, but smaller and smaller, especially in the eyes of the world, we're often very grieved by, by sin that creeps into the church, even in men who were at one time faithful, men who preached the gospel, and we live in a time when we can listen to sermons any time of the day or week, men who have blessed your soul by the preaching, faithful preaching of the word, and all of a sudden they're trailing off and going another way. It's very, very grievous. And again, we can't say, well, that would never happen. That would never happen in this congregation, and I hope it never does. But, beloved, we need to be on guard at all times. And how are we going to be on guard? First of all, by loving the Lord Jesus Christ, by embracing the gospel, by making it preeminent, by making it your strength. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, it, it's, it's finding true, lasting peace and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ that is exemplary and, and on display for the world. So we see in verses 16 to 20 then that here is the Lord's mercy again. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. No, does nobody see all of the injustices? Nobody's speaking up? Nobody's doing anything about this? And in many ways, we're helpless to do these things as, as humans. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate. Who's he speaking of here? Beloved, he's speaking of our Savior. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He put on righteousness as his breastplate. He's ready for war. And his breastplate, the very thing that defends him, is his righteousness. No man durst bring an accusation against the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't. He's perfect in all of his ways. He defends his church. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and helmet of salvation upon his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. Well, this could only be the Lord Jesus Christ because... What does it say repeatedly in the scriptures? Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is the Lord's. I will repay. We're not to take vengeance. It belongs to, uh, to the Lord. And here, who can take this garment of vengeance but God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God. Garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Uh, just wrapped around with zeal. And you remember that uh, the apostles remembered when the Lord Jesus overthrew the tables in the temple of the, of the uh, marketers. 
that uh, they remember that verse, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So here's Christ coming to defend his people and he's covered, clothed with a cloak, a garment of zeal. Zeal for his people. Zeal for his church. Zeal for his truth and the proclamation of it. And he's wrapped around with his zeal. I'm doing this. He didn't need to do it for himself. He's already righteous. He's already holy. He's already God himself. He does it because he loves his people and he loves his people zealously. He has a zeal for his church that far surpasses any zeal that any of us could have for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves her and he is coming to defend her. 18, according to their deeds, according he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands he, sh he will pay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. So here's the Lord doing a great work. And people, everyone is going to kneel at the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some are going to kneel before the great day of his return. They are ones who believe now that despite what's happening in governments, despite what's happening in the world at large, the church of Christ will prevail. Christ has promised he's building his church right now. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we're, we, we need faith to believe that because it, to our weak eyes, it doesn't always look that way. But the gates of Jesus promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you know that in the last days, Jesus said, when, he, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It, it sounds as though it's going to be a very dark time. It does to me, not everybody agrees with that, but I think it's going to be a very dark time. It's going to be a time when we're going to need to persevere and stand fast. We're going to need one another. And we're going to need to know that God's will is being done and that he will return in victoriously to gather up his saints. And those that don't kneel before that day are going to kneel after that day. And they're going to confess that Jesus was right, that his people were right, that his truth was true, that the gospel was true, that they should have knelt earlier. They should have confessed him as Lord earlier. And it will be a dreadful day, beloved. It'll be a terrible day. So I exhort you this morning, beloved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're unsure of your salvation, look to the Lord Jesus. Look to the Lord Jesus alone. He will forgive. He will forgive your most grievous sins. It's grace. We, we have a hymn about grace that is greater than all our sin. How big do you imagine your sin to be? God's, sin, God's grace is greater. It's, it's a beautiful thought, and it should bring tears to your eyes to think that when you've sinned against him and him only, and, and that he still forgives you, when people around you may not forgive you, but God, a holy God, a just God, a righteous God, still forgives through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And here is the summary in verse 20. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. Zion is 
another name for the church. The Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. The Lord makes a covenant. When the Lord makes a covenant, that covenant cannot be broken. The covenant, I believe, that he makes here with the Lord Jesus Christ and also with the church. I think there's kind of a double application that Christ's words come through his church, through his gospel ministers, to his people, and that that word doesn't change. It goes to their seed and to their seed seed forever. And it's the way of salvation that continues through times of triumph, through times of discouragement and seeming defeat, yet Christ is always a loving, victorious, gracious Savior. Have you cast yourself upon him and sought his mercy? He's a merciful God, a merciful Christ. He will forgive all your sin, confess your sin, and he will love you and, and uh, will save you. He is sure to save you, for he has promised to do just that. And let us pray. O Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thy truth has never changed, that it never fails. We pray, O Lord, that Thou wouldst be pleased to make us to be faithful witnesses of the truth of Thy Word. How glorious is the way of salvation. We're often confused, Lord, by people who reject such a gracious, loving, wonderful gift of eternal life. But, O oh Lord, Thou art the giver of life. Thou art the only Redeemer of Thine elect. Lord, have mercy. Have mercy upon each of our souls as we gather for worship this day. Have mercy upon the city of Calgary, the province of Alberta. Lord, we see so many turning from Thee, openly defying Thy name, blaspheming Thee, but Lord, we love Thee. Teach us to speak well of Thee. Teach us to love and praise Thee. Teach us to sing from the heart the praises of our victorious Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.